As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. With us again with Michael McKee is Randall Krosner professor at the University of Chicago Booth School and, of course, a former Fed uh, governor. I want, at least I thought captured it beautifully, Professor Krosner, the confusion we have, the movable parts of labor that is in any labor economics textbook. Which movable part of the American labor economy matters to you right now? Well, probably the, the piece that matters most is what, what's happening to wages. And so that um, the, the Fed can take a little bit of comfort in that uh, despite the very strong numbers that, uh, that we, the headline numbers that we saw in the upward revisions, we're not seeing an intensifying wage pressure. But that's going to be really the key that the Fed will be looking at because that's what feeds through to cost of services and then CPI, PCE, all the, um, uh, the implications for, uh, for inflation is going and cost of living. This is messy data. This is really messy data right now because it's not just uh, with respect to headline numbers. It's also the <coughs> compositional sure. story here. Which jobs are being added? Are they lower income jobs? Is that what we're looking at? And then what does that say about wage gains? Does that really give you an apples to apples comparison? Is part of the reason why data dependency is taking on less importance simply because the data is too messy to really read in any kind of clean manner? Yeah, it's, uh, you bring up a very important point because it's really important to to unpack uh, the those numbers and look at the composition. Is it that you know where are the layoffs happening? Are they happening at the lower end of the income spectrum? Or are they happening at the higher end of the income spectrum? Because that makes a very big difference for what average wage growth is going to be. So important to unpack that. Undoubtedly, that's what um, the uh, the people the Fed will be uh, will be doing. But we'll see. Um, I think my guess is this will be consistent with a skip. Um, but, um, you know, one right. never knows. We're going to have with us Randy Krosner. We're going to continue with Professor Krosner here uh, in a moment. Again, a lift to the equity markets off of where we were before the report. The VIX is stunning, 15.32. To imagine a 14 VIX will be extraordinary. Two-year yield out five basis points as well. Oil with a bit of a rally opposite, uh, off, I should say, from the jobs at report. Dollar weakness this morning. Professor Krosner, I want to go narrow on you now. I, I can okay. do this because you're so damn good at this. But the answer <laughs> is there's been anger over the last 10 days about the revisions that Mike McKee talks about. Nobody trusts him. Jack Welch, the late great Jack Welch of GE, didn't trust Bureau of Labor Statistics and all that. There's a thing, the birth-death adjustment to all of this statistics. Explain how experts like you are not worried or don't have the angst that we have in the birth-death study. 
So I think, uh, so I think just stepping back in bigger picture, I don't think these numbers are, are politicized. I do think they try to do the best job possible. But it ain't easy every month trying to come up with the total number of, of workers in the economy coming in, coming out. And so you have these challenges of seeing, well, what are new firms coming in? What are firms that are exiting? How well do you cover those? And that's one of the issues that, that comes up. So when there's a lot of churn in that, uh, that part of the market, which there is right now, mm -hmm. you can get some of this volatility. As you take a step back, especially with the upward revisions, can we make some assumption that perhaps there should be an increased pricing of further rate hikes down the line, that perhaps Citigroup's Andrew Hollenhorst is more right than some of the people uh, who are saying that there are going to be rate cuts starting in September? Yeah, I don't see any evidence for rate cuts coming uh, anytime soon. Now, there could be some sort of geopolitical event or some, something extreme like that that happens. But, but for that, the Fed is going to hang tough. They remember what happened to the Fed in the late 1970s, early 80s, when, they, when the Fed pulled back too quickly, when they thought, ah, we've vanquished inflation. They didn't. Inflation went back up and then they had to raise rates to double digit levels. They don't want to do that. They'd much rather move things up to the upper fives rather than take a long pause and then have to go to eight or 10. How high is the threshold right now to cut? Oh, I think it'd be very, very high. Um, un unless there's some sort of miracle where we get this immaculate disinflation and inflation just falls like a stone, which I have seen no evidence for, they ain't gonna be cutting anytime soon. It's a beautiful chart. We're not gonna show it today with all the moving parts here, but if you look at the standard deviation of American unemployment, 3.7% is still uh, an act of God. Michael McKee has parsed through all the data 3.70%, Mike, were well within the center tendency of the post-pandemic trend. In your mind, what's the level of unemployment where we begin to change this dialogue? Well, I think uh, most people at the Fed have said you got to get at least over four. And we're not, uh, we're four miles four has that. been what they considered sort of the neutral rate for a long time, and we've obviously been below that. Uh, but even at 4%, that's lower than it was a couple of years ago in terms of what a neutral rate would be. So I think there's certainly scope for them to fall more. Now, interesting decomposition of the unemployment rate. Uh, we had seen a lot of uh a lot made of the fact that black unemployment had fallen to the lowest ever. It has jumped up significantly, almost a full percentage point, nine-tenths of uh, a percent higher than it was in uh, the last report. So at this point, um, we're looking at 5.6%, uh, so uh, a, a big increase right. in uh, black uh, and African-American uh, employment, unemployment, which is uh, not necessarily a good thing. Just joining us, Markets on the Move, Lisa Bramwitz and Tom Keene, John getting ready for the next hour. Randall Crosner with us from the Booth School of Chicago, Michael McKee with all of his abilities. Uh, <laughs> Professor Crosner is with us. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much with BlackRock today. Really look forward to hearing from you through the month of June. Jeff Rosenberg joins us right now. Jeff, I'm going to ask you a Krosner-like question. Which I'm sure Carnegie Mellon, you know Carnegie Mellon economics, right? Yeah. You know, they're, they're, Great it's place. like first rate stuff. Jeff, I'm going to ask you here about the bombshell from John Williams a couple days ago, which is our start stays lower, which I believe sig signals a shift lower in interest rates. Are you in investing at BlackRock, presuming lower yield, higher fixed income price? 
it's been going in the opposite direction. Obviously, it's it's about higher interest rates, and um, you know we've been investing along that way, as he talked about in terms of the curve. You know, we're facing an inverted yield curve, and so the highest interest rates are in in the in the front end. You know, the 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 long term R star story is is really about whether or not uh, policy is tight uh, right now, and you know if R star is as Williams laid out, then. You know, policy is tight, and that's what the Fed believes, and that's why they're taking a pause. What today's labor market report sort of says is, where's the tightness? Uh, you've raised interest rates 500 basis points. We're still delivering 300 base, 300,000, over 300,000 jobs. So the disconnect here is that you're not really seeing the slowing in the labor market. Where you're seeing the slowing is in the goods-producing part of the economy, and the split in the outlook is goods – and survey-based data on goods is is at recession-type level, but uh, uh, services are are holding in just fine. So Randy said earlier, you know, you got to look at the details. One of the details that sort of sticks out here is a turnaround in the goods-producing areas of the economy in terms of hiring. That's a little bit worrisome for the Fed and the inflation because all the disinflation is coming from the goods. And so if goods prices are stabilizing and goods hiring is increasing, which is what we see in this report, then, you know, you may have the consensus outlook here, which is focused on these NAPM surveys, the PMIs, we got it earlier, the ISMs, you know, collapsing into recession levels. That may just be a nominal effect uh, and is really not telling you the story. And, and for the Fed, yeah, it's a pause uh, or a skip. Sorry, it's a skip. And then, you know, a couple of more strong reports. And, and, and it may not be that the rates and the real rate is as low as Williams thinks it is because you're not getting the effective tightening. Jeff, I keep wondering whether people have gotten too sanguine on the idea of inflation coming back to that 2% level of the Federal Reserve. And I'm looking right now at break-even rates, 2.2% over the next five to 10 years. Do you think that the suggestion here with a skip by the Fed and a hot labor market report suggests a stickiness and a resilience that is not priced into this market? Well, it's certainly not priced into the, the, the break-evens. You know, they are reflecting the immaculate disinflation. And, yeah, the evidence hasn't really shown anything to support the immaculate disinflation. So there's very much a, a hope trade going on here in the fixed income market in two factors, the hope that inflation immaculately falls. And then the second implication of that is the Fed's going to be able to go back to its old playbook and ride to the rescue of asset prices and asset inflation uh, and, and cut interest rates by the end of this year, which is, you know, again, you just don't see anything in the data that supports that. So uh, I think this report is a little bit challenging. Yeah, the unemployment rate helps a bit, but it's a very noisy uh, uh, data uh, series. And mm -hmm. so we'll have to see there. Miranda Crossan with us as well as Jeff Rosenberg. And again, we'll get to Ira Jersey and Gina uh, Martin Adams on this stock market that won't quit. She's been very good about that. Professor Crosner, I want to go back to Frank Knight, the advent of the Chicago School. And it came out of something I got totally wrong, which is my grandmother talking about the pandemic of 1918. We used to laugh at grandma. We laughed at, 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 at Frank Knight and everybody else who had to live that pandemic. We're coming out of our own pandemic mm -hmm. now. Can you practice the evil trade of labor economics now? Or is there just too much uncertainty to know what, what's going to happen forward? Surprise after surprise after surprise. Do we really know what we're doing? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, we've, we don't have pandemics all that often. And so trying uh, so you've got 
two main data points, the recent one and one from a century ago. So it's hard to uh, to make I sure that, that you've got your um, your models really well um, uh, well calibrated. But that said, I think we see some general characteristics that make sense. As we were talking about before, you're going to see lower labor force participation by older workers. You're going to see a reluctance of people going back to to the office. So I think those things are sort of broadly broadly predictable. Um, but you know, this strength that we're continuing strength in the labor market, uh, but for you know, 500 basis point increase by the Fed, that is pretty surprising. I mean, you take the, the Jeff Rosenberg across the century here from pandemic one to pandemic two, frame with your fixed income view, Jeff Rosenberg, the distance from Goolsby to Bullard. Right now, it seems extraordinary. Yeah, there's a there's a long way to go here. And, you know, as Randy just echoed, you know, 500 basis points is is a big increase. But, you know, there is the other school of thought on this real interest rate that the pandemic ushered in, you know, some significant structural changes that effectively raises the real interest rate. And if the real interest rate is actually higher then the Fed nominal interest rate has to be higher in order to get tightening. Uh, in now, we just have to be in this period of uncertainty, and it may be long and variable lags, and it's just around the corner. And labor markets can change very quickly, and we can, you know, get into negative numbers on the the headline payrolls, and and then the Fed will be justified in the in the skip. But the lack of momentum, the lack of evidence on making any of that progress, and the longer that proceeds sort of starts to push on the other argument that you really have had a structural change here. You need a much higher interest rate. There's less interest rate sensitivity. Uh, and, you know, the other big thing here is that is the balance sheet and liquidity. And perhaps we'll look back on this period and recognize that, you know, it wasn't about the interest rate. It was just that you had this leg legacy of excess liquidity that you had to wait to get that liquidity out before those interest rates started to really bite. And if you waited too long, perhaps that allowed inflation and inflation psychology to take hold. And, and that would be, you know, where we go. But, you know, that's just that's one potential path. Just real quickly here, Jeff, given the uncertainty and given the inability to really get an edge on data that's moving quickly and that really has defied a lot of expectations, what are you pushing back against? Where do you get conviction in terms of market positioning, given that there are so many question marks around some of these big parameters? You know, it's it's really hard. There's very little conviction. You know, if you if you take this consensus view, 65 percent, 70 percent probability of recession uh, in the next 12 months, you know, it's it's recession is the consensus. And, you know, you look at a report like today, you look at how well financial markets are holding up in terms of beta and returns. Yes, there's a big AI and tech and we're back into tech dominating, you know, seven stocks that 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 make it. But, you know, there there's not a lot of recession risk priced into the financial markets. Look at credit markets and credit spreads. They're at mid expansion levels. So if you're going to push back anywhere, I think the pushback right. is this kind of 70 percent consensus probability of recession right around the corner. And that's the issue is it's just not right around the corner. That's what report, this report tells you. It's pushed out right. further and further. It's the long and variable lags. So that time dimension is, I think, mm -hmm. the, the thing you push against. Rosenberg and Krasner pushing up the two-year yield 10 basis points, 4.44%. Krasner never did that when he was at the Fed. Uh, <laughs> Professor Krasner's with us. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much with BlackRock. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. 
That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Tiffany Wilding is so smart, she didn't do the dumb thing I did. She bought at the market bottom. So she's going to retire next week. Joining us now from PIMCO, getting the stock market right, Tiffany Wilding uh, joins us, our chief economist. Uh, Tiffany, uh, Bespoke had this great, great chart out. Carl Keatney retweeted it. 14 months in a row, Tiffany Wilding's been wrong about a great job economy. Let's just start with a why. Why are smart people like you getting this job economy so wrong? Well, this this payroll report, I would just point out, um, was much higher than even the highest economist uh, uh, estimate on the Bloomberg consensus. So um, there are a lot of people that got this one wrong. Um, you know, I, the the bottom line is is that just job growth in this recovery has has been just more persistent and sustainable than and than anybody per, uh, expected. And I think part of the reason why that's going on is because you are having companies coming out of the pandemic that had a lot of trouble getting labor. You know, that now want to make sure that they uh, can can continue to have the labor uh, when they need it. So what they're doing is they're hiring more people but working them fewer hours. And so I think the reason why they're doing that is because they're saying, well, if we have some weakness in demand, we can kind of weather it. But if demand picks up, we have a bunch of people that can work more hours and and we can um, also deal with some capacity there as well. So that seems to be what's going on, but it's producing productivity that's contracting. We've had five consecutive quarters more than ever in the history of the statistics uh, of productivity contraction. So, you know, this is coming at a cost. So, Tiffany, I want to ask you about the China read-through in just a moment, but first let's round out the employment story. What is it going to take to shake this labor market in the context of that the Federal Reserve has already thrown the kitchen sink at it? What's it going to take? Well, you know, I, I would just, just taking a step back from this report, and the three-month moving average, of course, is, is also very strong, well above uh, levels that we traditionally think are needed to keep the unemployment rate stable. But if you do look over the last couple of years, it, the three-month moving average of payrolls has been decelerating, you know, at, at quite a uh, consistent pace. And if you kind of just extrapolate that out, then, and we continue to decelerate as we've been decelerating, you know, that does suggest payrolls will be negative by the end of this year. So, you know, even though things still appear to be strong on a level basis, if you just look at where they've been, um, you know, they are slowing. And, and I do think that is a sign that monetary policy is working, maybe not as fast as some people were, were expecting, but I think it is working. The other thing is, is if you look under the details of today's report, it actually wasn't 
as great as the headline yeah. suggested. The aggregate, aggregate hours worked were low. They contracted. Aggregate <laughs> incomes decelerated. And the household survey, you know, uh, employment, yeah. which is the other survey, actually contracted. You know, so there's a little bit of a mixed picture coming from this report overall. Critty, Ian Lingan, it, uh, in the fixed income space at BMO Capital Markets mentioned yeah. the same thing. I, it's starting to become a growing consensus, although it sounds like Tiffany is, is out in front of it. The market uh, doesn't believe it. We're up 390 points. No, the market definitely does not believe it. Um, yeah. But they are perhaps believing what you're seeing over in China, at least on the slowing down front. And Tiffany, that's where I want to oh, come so to you. you me today. I'm, I'm a journalist. I have to. It's like, this is how oh. I get my paycheck, Tom. Really? Uh, does the China read-through, <laughs> Tiffany, of 2023 look like it did 15 years ago? Should we care about what we're hearing uh, on the other side of the Pacific? Well, you know, when I think about, so China has let, led, um, you know, just global industrial production over, you know, call it the last 15 years. So whatever trends were happening in, in China, you know, whether it be with the property sector or infrastructure investment, you know, they needed a lot of, of global commodities, um, you know, and, and other global inputs in order to um, kind of do the things that they were doing domestically internally on the supply side. And as a result of that, when China's doing well, global industrial production tends to be doing well in the United States. Um, you know, investment in things like equipment and, and other things also tends to be doing well. So it's really important. We always we always right. certainly watch China. It's really important to understand what their credit um, and as well as their fiscal policy is doing, because that gives you a sense, you know, on some of these supply side uh, reforms. Now, China, you know, Chinese policymakers have been very excited because they thought that domestic consumption would really pick back up. Um, I think, you know, there's rising questions about, you know, kind of the extent and durability of that. And so do I think the question in my mind is, do they, you know, hearken back to the usual levers they pull, which is to increase right. their own capacity? And does that, you know, then pull up, you know, global industrial production with it? Tiffany, just quickly here, your house call on the rapidity to lower interest rates. What's the PIMCO call <laughs> on disinflation, if you will? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think the, you know, from our perspective, rates are restrictive right now. And we do think that will slow the economy over time. Um, and, and as it slows the economy, you don't need restrictive interest rates anymore. You know, so we think the Fed will go back to two and a half percent. And when inflation falls, you know, to two point something, uh, as Rich Clareda, uh, my, my esteemed colleague suggests, you know, then the Fed will get go back to two and a half, kind of where they see neutral. Right. Um, you know, but I, I don't necessarily think they're going back to zero. Um, and unless we have a more severe recession, which we're not forecasting. So, you know, mm -hmm. we do think rates will be on average higher than they were, you know, in the 10 to 15 years before the pre you know, before the pandemic. But, you know, nevertheless, we are still right. in this kind of low neutral rate environment. And Tiffany Wilding, thank you so much. Uh, Chief Economist PIMCO. Yeah, I'm ready to talk to Nadia Lovell here and just absolutely dive into the equity outcome of Jobs Day today. What, whilst you're watching practice? The God, the makeup's not showing me blushing. <laughs> Nadia Lovell saves us right now. Senior U.S. equity strategist at UBS Global. Nadia, it seems like the stock market is going opposite of all the angst in economics. Is that true? It seems so. You know, it's been a tough market to navigate, you know, as we know that we've seen just wide dispersion in the market. And we have seen uh, one of the narrowest uh, breadth in the market 
particularly for a market that's coming off of a bear market localized low. I mean, it's only a third of the S&P constituents that are outperforming the index since the October low. And if you look over the last month, that's even a smaller fraction. So, Tom, I would say this continuous um, narrowing of market leadership um, is not a hallmark of a new cycle. And we think that this makes the market a little bit more vulnerable. We know that it's the AI frenzy that's really the powerhouse of late. And we do believe in that trend, but we think that there's just a lot being discounted right now. And we just question the resiliency of this market going forward. It's now trending towards our upside scenario of 4,400 for this year, uh, despite the fact that you, as you noted, the deteriorating macro backdrop. And so we just don't think that this cocktail is very appetizing at these levels. Perhaps not an overarching uh, scale, but I do wonder whether there's opportunity created by just how narrow the breadth has been and the incredible losses in other areas. Bespoke uh, Investment came out with this. The NASDAQ is outperforming the Dow, or did back in May, by 9.3 percentage points. That is the ninth widest margin of outperformance for the NASDAQ relative to the Dow in history. At what point do you start looking at some of the discarded uh, companies as something of an opportunity? We have been. I mean, we've sort of been looking at more the, the defensive areas of the market, like consumer staples, as well as utilities, and coupling that with some cyclical exposure on industrials. We are concerned about the economy going forward, and, and we do think that the economy, we were sold out. Of course, there's a continuous debate on whether or not we end up in a recession. We think that we're probably going to not see any economic growth by the time we get to the end of the year. So it becomes a, a coin flip. And so we think from a positioning standpoint, you want to continue to defend, uh, to lead in a bit into the defensive areas of the market and take the opportunity to take some chips off of some of those areas of the market that's really gone up and is feeling a little bit frothy at this point. I've been hearing so many people say that they're going into defensives. Aren't they overpriced right now based on some of the others? What does it mean to even be defensive at a time when the economy is growing and there's sort of a rolling recession in different sectors? There is a rolling recession in, in different sectors, but we again, we haven't seen the full impact of tighter monetary policies. We know that credit lending standards are uh, tightening. And when you look at the forward and in indicator, which I think Jonathan has been pointing out for much of the morning, we pay very close attention to the ISM manufacturing index because that mm. tends to have a very good correlation with earnings growth going forward, and that continues to deteriorate. We're even seeing the weakness in the new orders. Uh, we're seeing a normalization of that that points to additional weakness ahead. And we know that credit lending standards have a very good correlation with job growth, particularly for small and mid-sized businesses. And while we're not seeing that deterioration immediately today, it does point to that there will be some ahead. So that's why we continue to believe that a defensive position is the right one in this environment of uncertainty uh, as we get later in the year. Trade for the brave by the Hang Seng Salai. Nadia, are you willing to make it? That's what Michael Harnett brought up this morning over at BFA. We do have a preference for China. Um, you know, the recovery there has been uneven, but we are seeing some encouraging data, particularly on the surface side of the economy. As mm -hmm. uh, when you look around the Labor Day uh, uh, weekend a few weeks ago, um, so we would lean in more on those areas, the leisure side of of the Chinese economy, and not so much the property side. Nadia, are we modeling in disinflation? which is boosting the P.E. ratios of the presumed ratio of the market and particularly the profit-making technology companies. Is this just the stock market getting out six months 
or dare I say, out a year and expecting a disinflation? Well, I think when you say about tech, I think people are looking two, three years out for AI revenues that might not materialize for everyone. Yes, we do favor the AI big uh, big data as well as cybersecurity. This is part of our ABC of tech framework that we've been using for the last two years. But we do think that you have to become increasingly uh, selective because there's a lot right now discounted, particularly in some of uh, the semi names. So we think that it's more, it's less about the disinflation that we're seeing and more about the enthusiasm about the market opportunity for AI. Nadia, thank you. Nadia Lovell there of UBS going into payrolls. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let us recalibrate on a Friday and move forward. And we're going to try to avoid the silliness of the political season. You can do that with Daniel Clifton to say he's partnered head of policy research at Strategus doesn't describe that when he started writing notes years ago, they came out of the screen, came off the Internet with terse facts about what's going on. The fact that has changed Dan Clifton is the guy from Bakersfield. Here's a kid out of Bakersfield. He was a firefighter. He worked his way through one of the Cal State systems. Kevin McCarthy's been underestimated by everybody from day one. You write this morning on the underestimation of the speaker. How big a victory is it for Kevin McCarthy? Well, it's big. It's not the biggest. He still has problems in his caucus, but this is big. He earned his speakership over the last three months. This was a president who said, I will not negotiate on the debt ceiling. I believe the president was very clear about that based on his own experiences, which you remember very clearly, Tom, from 2011 when he was vice president. And the speaker unified his caucus, passed a bill out of the House of Representatives, forced a negotiation, and got a trillion dollars of spending cuts. Did they get everything they wanted? Absolutely not. And that's evident by the vote totals that Jonathan just reported on. More Democrats voted for the debt ceiling bill in the House and Senate than Republicans did. But this could have gone far worse. The brinksmanship could have been far, far more intense if McCarthy wasn't able to unify his caucus the way he did. And he delivered two thirds of Republicans in support of raising the debt ceiling. It's a big, big win. And he showed that he could do this better than previous speakers. To stagger forward to November 2024, is the middle changed? I mean, obviously, there's going to be a polarity primary on both sides. But did the respect for the middle change within our political class? 
No, I think that we always have a middle. It's just the extremes tend to uh, amplify that. Let me give you one example. We've had nine federal elections since the financial crisis, and the voters of this country have removed the party in power in eight of those nine elections. So that's somebody in the middle moving between both sides back and forth. And I do think that that middle does hold. It's just a really ugly process here. The process of getting legislation passed, but it got done on a bipartisan basis and how we select our presidents moving forward. And so I think this is gonna be the wildest election of our lifetime. It's gonna make 2016 and 2008, which were just classic, amazing elections, uh, be very, very different this time. But we have a lot of challenges, Tom, before we get there. We're going to have to settle how we're going to do the defense spending budget, even though we have a top line spending number. We're going to have to figure out how we're going to respond to China with these new budget limits in place. And the Treasury is going to be very, very constrained in how they are raising the debt with the rising debt service costs in the first 35 years. So it's easy to pull forward and say, OK, we got this big crisis out of the way. What's going to happen in 24? But we're going to have some some serious domestic and international challenges before we get there. And governing is going to 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 be needed. And the biggest implication from this debt ceiling deal is that there's now just a smidge of trust between Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden, something that did not exist. Uh, as late as three weeks ago. I wanted to pick up, Dan, on this idea of the tax constraint of how much revenue they can raise, the sort of fiscal drag that starts to take hold. I woke up this morning very excited that maybe we could stop talking about the debt ceiling debate and that perhaps we've moved on. But you point out that once debt servicing costs exceed 14% of GDP, I believe, you end up with this real pressure. Can you talk about what that means economically? So if you talk to anybody who's been in markets or Washington for 35 years, they're like, deficits really don't matter. There's a lot of complaining about it. But this is the first time our debt servicing cost is rising in 35 years. We measure that by net interest costs as a percent of tax revenue. Interest costs are surging because of higher interest rates and tax revenues are declining. And so what's, what the debt ceiling really represented, Lisa, was the first course in a larger period of austerity. And how did we reach that conclusion? We went back 80 years and we looked at whether the U.S. was in a period of austerity or stimulus and really the defining factors that that debt servicing costs. Once you hit over 14%, the bond market starts to put pressure on policymakers and it forces austerity. I mean, we raised taxes six years in a row in the early 80s under Ronald Reagan while we had that 14% uh, interest cost and it was higher. And so we'll hit it in the next couple of months. And that's why you're seeing Treasury so constrained on its ability to raise debt. I mean, they were raising cash management bills this week at 6.15%. Sure, the debt ceiling added a little premium to that, but come on, at 6% for three-day cash management bill, it's a pretty big big problem. And I think that that's gonna be a bigger issue. So Treasury's got to reload TGA, the Treasury General Account. They're gonna try and do it out of the reverse repos, Lisa. And that's gonna be really hard to do because that reverse repo rate is pretty high. There's no duration risk. And if they can't get it out of reverse repos, it's going to come out of it's going to come out of bank reserves. And that means that there's going to be less liquidity. And so we've been arguing throughout the whole debt ceiling debate is that stocks can rally into the debt ceiling debate because there will be massive liquidity being pumped into the system. 
once the debt ceiling gets raised, that liquidity may come out and there poses some risk for financial markets in the second half of the year. A lot of people focused on the potential for that. Dan, I just want to finish on the general, the election next year. And yeah. Just a word on the front runners at the moment. Can you think of a time when such a large chunk in the middle of this country is facing the prospect of two candidates facing each other again, that they just don't want them to run? Great question. I spent 11 weeks on the road uh, into the last election, and every time I'd say Trump versus Biden, no matter who that person was, they gave me a funny look, right? And a Republican, Democrat, old, young, it didn't really matter. And so there's their support may be a little bit softer than what you would see in the polls because of high name ID. We're going to have a very spirited debate in the Republican uh, primary. I keep an eye on Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, seems to be indicating that he wants to get in. Ron yeah. DeSantis is won a landslide in Florida. So as he gets used to the rhythm of the campaign, I think he's going to be a formidable candidate. And I keep an eye on Tim Scott. Then on the Democratic side, I would just keep an eye on RFK being a Pat Buchanan-like candidate, what Pat Buchanan did to George Herbert Walker Bush. Joe Biden wants to be the nominee. He will be the nominee. I'm not saying that in any way. Sure. But Pat Buchanan dented George Herbert Walker Bush in 92, which ultimately led to Bill Clinton's victory. And there could be some concern about that as we get deeper into the race. So I think we're going to have a very spirited debate. Interesting. Candidates are going to be tested. And, uh, you know, again, the process isn't very pretty, but I think the outcome will produce one that may be a little bit different than the consensus expects right now. Interesting. Dan, thanks for that. Dan Clifton there, a strategist research partner. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.